In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. What a story. The third of the pre-Lenten weeks, the third of the pre-Lenten Sundays, that lead us, that guide us, step by step, towards the great spiritual undertaking of the great fast. The first Zacchaeus Sunday with its theme of desire, that desire with which you and I cannot undertake any task, any exploit and hope, that we will have some measure of success in God. Desire succeeded by the Sunday of the publican and the Pharisee and its dreadful theme of that struggle within our hearts, within our thoughts, that struggle that tears us between pride and humility. And now we take the third step the midpoint of this, these five Sundays of preparation. And we come to this, this parable of the prodigal son. There is no question about whom Christ is speaking. The Father, of course, is his Father, the God of heaven. And we know that this is the case by a little giveaway clue. When the prodigal son is trudging home, rehearsing his penitential lines, begging to be taken on as a hired servant, we notice that the father sees him while the boy is still a long way away. The son does not see the father but the Father sees him. That is how it is with us and God. We don't see him. He sees us. He sees us even when we are far away from him. God, it turns out, is not nearsighted. He has binocular eyes. Secondly, the prodigal son is, of course, ourselves. He is trapped by the very thing that traps every human person. He is trapped by that desire which has gone wild, which has gone astray, because it is not anchored firmly in God. We can desire all we want, provided we desire God. But if we don't desire God, the problem is that very fact leaves us exposed and vulnerable to demonic assault. And unfortunately, if, our, if the heart of our desire is not God, we will have no way of avoiding entanglement with whatever it is the devil is proposing to us. So the boy who is caught is mankind. There is a third character in this 
in this story, this parable, who is much more ambiguous. And I will speak of him at the end. The figure, possibly the tragic figure, of the elder brother. We begin with a son looking at his father as if his father were already dead. He asks his father for his inheritance before his father has died. So we understand that for the boy, the father is dead. God is dead. And a dead man has no power over you. All the power that the Old Testament assigns to the pater familias, the head of the family, the man, is gone when the man dies. So the son admits, without saying so, admits between the lines that his father has no influence, no power, indeed in his own eyes is just lifeless. And so, under those conditions, the only thing the poor boy can do is take, grab, get whatever he can. And he's not doing this with a very good goal in view. He doesn't get his inheritance and then say, hmm, now what should I do? As soon as he gets what he wants, he starts packing. He's already got the map. He's called AAA. He knows the way. And he goes to the only place a boy can go under these circumstances. He goes into a far country. You and I who live in a mobile society and go to sleep in this state and wake up in that one and think nothing of it, we have no way of understanding what the Bible means by putting in that tiny adjective, far. That far country, that little word far, strikes terror into the heart of the people of this society. Because to go into a far country where you are not known, where you have no relatives, no extended family, means that you are walking the tightrope of life with no safety net under you at all. You get sick, you've had it. You get attacked by thieves or pirates, it's over. You need something, no one is there to find it for you. All of those tasks are performed by family members, the nuclear family, the extended family, and that network that exists in every human village and city of this period. So he walks out the gangplank into shark-infested waters to a far country, a place that is alien. And there, what happens to him is what happens to boys and girls when they find themselves in the geography of the far country. He falls prey to every lust every temptation, every seduction. And it isn't very long before the legacy which he has taken from his father is gone. The fair-weather friends who are always ready to join him in a glass at the tavern 
suddenly don't even know him. And he hires himself out to a man who gives us the second clue as to just how far this country is away from the home because he is raising swine and therefore he is no Jew. He is completely alien. He is a worshiper of idols. He is a pagan. He hires himself out to such a person and he stands there feeding the man's herd of swine and this Jewish boy ends up doing what is inconceivable. He envies the pig, the unclean one. This unclean animal has a better life than this son of Abraham. So you see how Christ constructs this parable, how carefully it is put together, how easily we can miss the detail and not feel the full punch of this story. Because you and I, you and I are tempted to wander off out of the Father's home, having already decided that the Father is dead. We can wander off into the highways and byways of far countries. And Christ says, this is what will happen to you. Bet the rent on that. It will occur. But here, a miracle happens. And it is the miracle of human repentance. The word for repentance, as I'm sure you know, is metania. It means to change your mind, to alter the way you think about things. For example, you stop thinking of your father as if he were dead. You stop thinking of your father as if all he was was a bank account for you, and you're the only signature. You stop thinking of how nice it is. Have you noticed how green the grass is way over there in that far country? You stop thinking like that. And in this, Christ is showing us how our mind can doesn't necessarily, but can function to bring us back to reality, the reality of the Father, who, by the way, is not dead, who is never dead, because he hath immortal life in himself. So the miracle happens, and this boy, as the King James Bible puts it, comes to himself. It actually means he repents, he changes his mind. We use this term, by the way, in art. When a painter is painting something, and he steps back, and he thinks, ah, why did I do that? And he erases or scrapes the paint off. It is called pentimento, a change of mind. He repents before his painting. He comes to himself, and then Christ says, memory kicks in. 
This is the importance of childhood, of giving kids, planting seeds in kids that they will remember at a moment of crisis. It's very easy to plant seeds in them when they're little kids. Then they become teenagers. And you know, what happened to all the things I gave them? They've forgotten everything. No, they haven't. The seed is in there. You have no idea when that seed will germinate. At what moment that seed will suddenly spring up. We've all seen the photograph of the blade of grass that has cracked open a cement sidewalk and is there coming up. Well, that's the miracle. That's what happens. And he says, I'm going to die here. Rather than that, I will arise and I will go to my Father and I will say, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight. Take me back. No. <laughs> Lord knows I'm not your son. I do not deserve to be thy son. But take me back at least as a workman. Give me a job. Well, this is wonderful. We have the crisis, we have memory, we have repentance, and now we have humility. He doesn't sail back and think, well, I'm going to play on my father's emotions and get him to take me back as his son. He humbles himself, and he starts the long path back from the far country. That path can be very painful for us. If once we are arrested in the midst of our far country, wherever that is, that can be a very painful journey back to the Father's, the Father's love. Because His house is built of love. But however long and however difficult and however uncomfortable and dangerous, it is the path that the boy must take, and by gosh, with gumption, he takes it. And he is trudging along, rehearsing his lines, Father, I have sinned in heaven's sight, and I am no longer worthy to become. And he's got it all together, and he doesn't even see that he's getting back close. But the Father sees him while he is yet far off. Because the Father is looking for him. The Father goes out and he looks down that path every day, waiting for his Son. God waiting for us. And the Father does not wait for the Son to get back to the porch. And he doesn't say, Ha! Ah, so, you've come crawling back. And he doesn't say, well, huh, look who's here, learned our lesson. He doesn't say that. But notice what the son does not say. Father, how could you? How could you have been so foolish as to give me all that money what I, didn't you realize that I had no way of coping? I lost it all. He doesn't blame the Father. And believe it or not, 
That is something that our era has added to the equation. We have learned how to blame God for the things that we do wrong. How could he? Neither of them takes these particular lines with each other. What the father does do is, without waiting for the son to get to the house, he runs down the road. He throws his arms around the poor boy, and he kisses him on his neck. He then commands his servants to <laughs> take these shabby, patched, filthy clothes off him and put on the best robe. Not a good robe, the best robe. God does not vest us in something okay. God always gives you the best. He has them put a ring on his finger, and that circle of gold is always the sign, then as now, of eternal love. What the Father offers the Son, who has messed up so atrociously, is a pledge of his eternal love, nothing less, the best robe followed up by God's eternal love. This is turning out to be a very good day. He then does what is done in any traditional society. That tragic boy becomes the occasion for the feasting and eating and dancing of the kingdom of God. No matter how dreadfully he has behaved, no matter how foolishly, no matter, no matter what, he is now the occasion of the feast, the dance, and the song. Heaven rejoices. We come to the end of this story with its minor note, its dark key. The older brother is a very good sort. He is loyal, he is faithful, he is moral, he is a very hard worker. And while the younger boy has been throwing the family legacy out the window in riotous living amidst pagans, the older boy has been there plowing the fields and overseeing the crops and all the work that must be done in an estate of the first century AD. And he comes back and he hears the music, the singing, the sound of the dancing, he smells the fatted calf, and he inquires of the servant, What gives? What's going on? And the servant says, Thy brother is returned. The older son has a visceral reaction. Instantaneously, he flashes anger. He is overwhelmed with bitterness. That rotten kid, that scoundrel who has dragged our family name and reputation through the muck, that 
so and so comes home and he gets this? And in his sullen anger, something of the truth of the man comes out, which shocks and dismays and saddens us. Not just to go through the work, hating the work, hating the boss, hating things. Not just to do the work, to be proud of oneself. Surely, the man in a parable just a few weeks ago who discovered how great his bumper harvest was and said, well, I must uh, build bigger barns and eat, drink, and be merry. To this man who obviously was a good manager, a good worker, the crops did well. To this man God said, thou fool. These admittedly sterling characteristics. God, after all, is far more interested in the heart, the spirit in which we perform our life work. And so the father comes out of the house which is filled with the sound and smell of banqueting. And he entreats the oldest son, come in. And there's that tragic dialogue in which the older son blames the father. To the father he says, essentially, how dare you? And the father, the father doesn't walk off in a huff. The father stands there pleading with his older boy. Look, son, your brother who was dead lives. He who was lost is found. He gives him the reason, the raison d'etre of this banquet. Come on, lighten up. We're celebrating life here. Join that. The parable ends there, and we never know what happens to the older boy. Some of the fathers say he doesn't go in, probably to drive home to us how high the stakes are, how important it is that we not merely do our duty, do our job, but that we do it in good heart. We do it in such a way that it leaves us filled with a charitable heart. Because if at the end of a hard day where we have done our job well, we are bitter about other people, then something has been wrong, tragically wrong on the lawn. We must do our hard work and do it well in such a spirit that when our younger brother who was dead is found alive, we want to dance for the sheer joy of it. Then the work has truly been done well. It has been done as God would have it. This is the third of the five pre-Lenten Sundays. Each of these themes is incredibly rich. Desire, 
humility versus pride. And this week, brothers and sisters, for your meditation and mine, the theme is repentance, changing the mind, letting the heart burst forth. Amen and Amen.